that's why it's important for us to also be having conversations with Yara because we get interesting insights. Then we can go out into the market and go, well, we now we can solve two problems with one company. That's really powerful. We solved a farmer's problem. So they've got something they actually want to use. And oh, by the way, we solved Yara's problem because we're having a conversation with someone like that. So we understand what their problems are and it becomes a win-win. So maybe that's transformation. Maybe that's a grenade. I don't know, but it's moving the needle. And that's ultimately what we need to do. Hey now, it is Dan Eberhardt here and welcome to the Growing the Future podcast where we talk to folks who like to innovate, collaborate, and transform the agricultural industry. Thank you for joining us for season five, episode four. For a while now, I've been hearing about Tall Grass Ventures, this unique venture capital fund of Alberta through a number of mutual connections that I share with, with this guest. And of course, there's only one and a half degrees of separation between folks in the agricultural space. So but when I finally met this individual, it's kind of like being a, as a kid dreams of being an astronaut and you get to meet Buzz Aldrin, because as a man who walked on the moon, when it comes to VC, when I grow up, I'd love to invest in and help startups succeed. So I was very interested in their unique approach that this fund is taking. So this individual and his team has a focus on early stage startups, collaborating with them as an extension of their team and playing a slightly different version of Moneyball, stacking the odds for success. So before I introduce today's esteemed guest, I'd like to remind you to check out the Eberhardt family of companies online, starting with eberhardtfarms.com, where we grow food to feed the world in Langenberg, Saskatchewan, suregrowth.ca, where we offer precision agronomy consulting services, convergencegrowth.com, where we accelerate solutions across food, health, and agriculture, much like tall grass does. Solutions.ca, where we deliver one-of-a-kind fertility solutions of the future to your farm. And you can also get notified by email about our new episodes by signing up for our newsletter at growingthefuturepodcast.ca. My next guest comes from a fifth-generation farm, but ultimately became a very accomplished M&A lawyer, has co-founded, built, and exited a number of businesses in ag tech and fintech, which is financial tech. For those, we're going to try not to use too many acronyms here today because I don't have an MBA. I don't know about you as a listener, but I will I will try and stop this guess if we get too techie or, or too legalistic. But this individual has raised multiple rounds of investment, bought and sold companies and technologies and worked with numerous accelerators, incubators, and mentors. Through all that, he identified a gap in the market for investment in pre-series A tech companies, which again... He'll explain that to us. This led him to founding Tallgrass Ventures to help founders build better businesses. Today, we're going to talk to this individual about his journey from the farm in Southwest Saskatchewan to becoming a fancy pantsy M&A lawyer. <laughs> well, why he felt the need to start this new fund with Tallgrass Ventures. And of course, probably the most exciting part, all these companies that they're working with to help achieve a liftoff. Welcome to the show, Wilson Acton. Thanks for having me. This is quite the setup. I certainly haven't been compared to walking on the moon or any of that sort of stuff in the past. So here we go. Well, for some of us in layman terms, what you do could be seen as rocket surgery, but we want to <laughs> bring it all down to where the rubber hits the road. And, and obviously you're helping startup companies and agriculture grow. But when I first met you and I started to listen to your story, I was really taken aback by your journey, the technical side of it, 
and and thankfully you have some tenacity and skills that that give you the credentials to take people's money on mass and, and invest it in a way that's going to provide a return in an ethical fashion but take us back to your roots your journey your past your education your execution on the m a lawyer front what that all means and what makes you qualified to be at the helm of a, a ship where you take other people's money and you give it back with a lot more of it, having multiplied it, we hope. Yeah, at its most kind of simple <laughs> form, that's our job is to take money and multiply it. That's what we do. And so kind of stepping all the way back, originally from Moose Jaw, grain and commercial cattle, we also did a bunch in the performance horse space, been scratching around Moose Jaw there for a lot of years. And as you mentioned, five generations around Moose Jaw, and then I was, and then I was also the fifth generation on my mother's side, and they were the cattle ranchers down along the U.S. border in the Big Muddy Valley. So grew up around all this forever and went off to Saskatoon and did a degree in agriculture and got in all sorts of trouble there and made all sorts of friends and always kind of scrappy on the business front. How can we do more? How can we do things a bit different? We used to laugh because the neighbors would kind of look over the fence line at us and, and go, what are those What are those clowns doing over there? And a lot of times they were right. And sometimes we were onto something. We just kind of kept pushing at it. And that kind of constantly pushing at it and, and trying to do something more, that actually led me to Calgary. So I built a construction company in Calgary while I was still farming in Moose Jaw after my egg degree. Joe kind of ended up by accident in law school in the winter, nothing better to do. And went through that process. And then after finished law school, I learned something that I didn't know going in. And that is if you don't finish what they call it your articles, basically, if you don't go practice law within so many years of finishing a law degree, then basically the law degree goes away. You get your law degree, but you can't go practice later. Like you have to kind of get going. So I thought, well, this was a big waste of time. I better go finish my last year, basically, as a practicing lawyer to kind of complete the circle. And so I did that. And at the same time, we went through a bunch of kind of market upheaval. The 08 financial crisis happened, kind of all that stuff. Lots of crazy things were happening. And we just kind of kept at it and, and accidentally didn't mean to be a lawyer, but accidentally stayed there for a decade. I think I was two weeks shy of a decade. One of my partners reminded me as I, as I was walking out the door. I was a partner with one of these big national law firms. We had done $160 billion, roughly, of mergers and acquisitions and corporate finance. So bought and sold companies, helped them raise money on the legal side. Some pretty kind of pretty cool stuff. Saw some pretty gnarly things. And then so wait a minute, wait a minute. This wasn't what I intended to do. Let's go back to building <laughs> businesses. That's the fun part. And even in law, that's why I did mergers and acquisitions and stuff like that was because we were building businesses. We're just using a legal tool set. That's ultimately what we're doing, putting puzzles together. And so started building technology companies. Joined some former clients of mine who had been in the space before and kind of the wheel set in motion and have a bad habit of seeing opportunities and a bit of that farm boy mentality, farm kid mentality of you can either complain about a problem or you can pick up tools and fix it. And so that's what we kept doing. And I joked, we developed a bunch of scar tissue along the way. We scaled companies into Latin America and sold stuff and bought stuff and did all sorts of things and, and was actually in the process of building another company in the ag tech space, when tall grass started to come to fruition, and it was kind of other other companies came in saying, "Hey, can you help us?" Basically, you've done this before. How do we deal with this problem or that problem? And I joked, I called it scar tissue rental, and 
And that evolved <laughs> into the core of what Tallgrass was, was, wait a minute, we can put together a team of really awesome humans and help build really awesome companies. It's kind of, you don't know what you don't know. And, and, and so how can we bring a bunch of people together that the way I look at it is building a business is like solving riddles, just a bunch of riddles. Funny thing about riddles, the more riddles you solve, the better you get at them. And so that's kind of where we come in is we've solved a lot of riddles over the years. Building your business is trying to solve riddles, whatever it is. So let's help you do it. And oh, by the way, we'll come along with the money to help accelerate that that you need. You said something that I want to ask you about that goes way back, and hopefully it's a useful tangent. But what did you learn about business from horse racing? <laughs> Ironically, I learned a fair bit in that I was a kid from Moose Jaw and I was, yeah, riding show jumping horses in places like Spruce Meadows and World Cup competitions in South Africa and Europe and Australia. And so I was doing stuff that is a total big, big money game. People with the last name of Cargill and stuff like that were, were the people that were in the mix and they paid big bucks for horses and big bucks for trainers. And we didn't have any of that. We had like a $2,500 horse we bought at an auction sale, but damn it, we could ride. And so learned a lot about commerce because all of a sudden, I talk about being industrial. Well, we figured out that we could train a horse pretty good and we could sell it to somebody with a, that was willing to pay a lot more than we could. So we bought and sold a lot of horses. And then often you'd sell a horse and, and they kind of like a sports car every now and then it needs a tune up. And so you could, then all of a sudden they'd get a phone call. Well, can you come help tune it up? Well, so that's no problem. We can do that. And just kind of, it keeps going from there. I remember going into a competition in Chicago and we rolled in with, I think five or six horses in the truck. The goal was to leave with zero, get everything sold when we're there. And we were sitting there leaning on a post and this truck pulled up from Texas and they walked one horse out. And I knew, I knew the horse because a friend of mine had sold it to them. And I did the math. They'd spent more on that horse than we had in our truck, our trailer, all five horses, <laughs> all our gear. I think we were sleeping in the cab to cut cost. So you learn about commerce right away. How do you compete in that when you're completely outspent? Well, it wasn't about spending. It was about being smarter and going to the right spots. And there's an element of skill and all those things. Are you talking about horses? Or are you talking about startups here? I'm getting lost. Yeah, right? Wow. Yeah. But that's a beautiful yeah. thing. Very interested, though, in your career as an M&A lawyer, and I can't help but think that's got to inform a lot of your activities and your the way your neurons are structured when it comes to dealing with startups. And it's probably an area that most people can't even see that part of the matrix. What are some of your most vivid memories or, or stories from, from your days on the battlegrounds of being an M&A lawyer? What did that look like? Lots of stories. You have to be careful. Some of them are still kind of cloaked in the secrecy, but... Well, you're a lawyer. You could represent yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. No, like we like we saw some we, we, cool stuff that happened, and, and we bought and sold a bunch of things, and involved in some some huge deals and some small deals. But like our job really was like think of it like strategy, like games of games of strategy. And we'd spend a bunch of time. We let's say we've got a, a company we're trying to buy. I remember one example. We were trying to buy this company. Again, we didn't have the most money, but we really wanted it. There was another kind of suitor at the table, so to speak, that they were getting married up with. And so we had to get in there and kind of wiggle around. And how can we buy this opportunity for fractions? And, and so there was a there was a, a deal we did out of Europe 
and the other people at the table were like Google and Bill and Melinda Gates spending hundreds of million. And I, and I think we got the deal done for a little under 10 million. And it was just all about how do we, how do we structure it? How do we go faster? Sure. They had more money, but we could move quicker and figured out what the other side's incentives were. So we built ours, although we were a fraction of the price, the people that were selling it in this case, it was kind of an auction. It was, it was a bit of a problem. We maximized the compensation to the people running the process. And so while our bid was the lowest, the people that were making the decisions made the most. And so just kind of doing that sort of stuff was always exciting. We had one deal we were doing. We had we had a, in the middle of doing the deal, and we didn't even know it. We were watching, this was a big public markets deal. We were watching the news channels like CNN, and there's the tickers that go across the bottom with like the news all the time, the live feed. And across the, the ticker was announcing a pipeline leak of our company that we didn't even know about and the company didn't know about. This is how we found out about it. And so literally while on the phone, they sent helicopters out to fly over the Gulf of Mexico to try and spot the leak in, and it was a natural gas leak. So just bubbles. There's no, like, there's no oil slick or anything. It's just bubbles in the water in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. And they were throwing divers who had headsets on, on the conference call. They were throwing them out of the helicopter into the water to try and get an eye on on this pipeline because this deal was worth like a billion plus dollars. I think it was just bananas. Some of the stuff you'd see. What was the biggest deal killer? Because uh, I had somebody tell me something very interesting about what what kills deals the most. I don't want to compare notes, but what in your experience yeah. what killed deals? Because you know a deal isn't done until it's done. How many times Sorry. are you right there ready to sign and something fell through? So there's a there's a saying in in that world. Well, it's just two things. One, there's a saying, time kills all deals. And so often, and people don't kind of appreciate it, the investment bankers and the M&A lawyers and these types, they're wound right up. They're just kind of like a snare drum. And it's because everything has to happen so fast because each day uh, is another day for another risk to show up or another opportunity or something to happen and it kills your deal. And so time kills deals. You're always trying to compress time. We had a deal that we used to watch the like blogs of the stock market traders and they were starting to get they were they were just guessing, they were just musing amongst themselves kind of like on Twitter. And they were getting so close to the truth on this confidential deal that we we called and we said we got to this was I forget what it was like nine o'clock at night. We have to announce this deal by before six o'clock tomorrow morning because people are getting too close to the truth just by guessing. And so time compression, off you go. So that's one. And the other one that kill in M&A that kills deals, egos. Egos <laughs> kill go. deals. Yeah. <laughs> that's what it is. Yeah. Offending the owner. Offending the owner. Yeah. And, it's, and it always manifests in different ways, right? I want to get a bigger compensation package. I should be the CEO of the combined companies. You should pay me more. And sometimes it's an off comment that rubs a guy the wrong way, right? This is his baby he spilled, spent his whole life building. <laughs> And you make a comment, egos kill deals. It sounds like an awesome world of intrigue, kind of a Game of Thrones kind of thing. How do you sort of lose your your spirit for that? I mean, you sounded like you lost your your ability to be enamored with that. Or when did you know it was the end of the road in that career? I still enjoy it. And actually, what's interesting is in my role now, I that's I still do. This is what I do, right? We this is you were just doing it in a different lens, and so it just kind of shifted gears, right? Like there's an element of as an M&A lawyer, you're still a service provider. And I used to say, we're still a plumber. And so you'd still get called 
on Saturday night or Sunday night, nobody cares what you're doing or what's going on in your life. You're up. You're you're a plumber and and get going. And at the end of the day, the job was done. And I think the worst was job be done. You turn yourself inside out to meet timelines and get it done, save the deal or whatever. And then and then well, gosh, your bill's awful high. And you're like, like, like really? I, I literally missed my daughter's birthday and you're going to complain about a couple hundred bucks or whatever it is. And so that started to wear thin after a while. And, and it's just kind of the nature of the beast. And there's an element of the repetitiveness, right? Like over 10 years, you kind of have these stories of the mass, but, but there's also a lot of repetitiveness. You kind of end up doing a lot of the same things. You've seen, seen the same rodeo. And so it's time to switch it up. I get a theme here of a, l- a little bit of a focus on the underdog or doing doing more with less or being able to leapfrog, having to really put certain levels of investment that others might in and, and just seeing that diamond in the rough. Mm-hmm. I guess that's what you're experiencing with Tallgrass going in so early. You have a slightly different strategy. Describe to me how the typical VC fund works numerically in terms of t- statistics and how they provide yep. a return and how you guys differentiate yourself from that. Sure. So the typical venture capital model comes out of, well, Silicon Valley, San Francisco area, and it's driven off of primarily software style investing in software type type companies. And so the reason I raise that is software type companies tend to be very light in terms of assets. You got a bunch of people, you got a bunch of laptops, but that's about it. Like you don't have to go build a building and you don't have to do this kind of stuff. And so think Instagram and Twitter, right? You build code and things. And then people adopt it. And so your cost of producing a new unit, of getting a new customer incrementally is super low because you built it all already, right? Once you've built Instagram, it doesn't really cost you anything for that net new account. And the result of that is those businesses tend to be what they call very scalable. And so a million bucks in can can spit 10 million bucks out the back end because once you've kind of built the core, if you thought of it like R&D, once you've kind of solved that R&D problem, then it just you just keep going. It doesn't cost you much to make the next one. And so venture capital was born really in that space. And, and the approach is, listen, all of these startups in and of themselves with this crazy idea, that's pretty high risk stuff. Is this the next Instagram or is this just some crazy person in a garage? <laughs> and so the approach was, well, we'll spread our risk across a portfolio of these crazy high-risk ventures. And in doing that, you actually reduce the risk because what is the statistical likelihood if you invest in 15 companies that all 15 go bust? One, well, there's a pretty good chance, but 15 of them? And so the way though that it works is, and they call it the power law. And so the way it works is the 15 companies that you pick each one of those, you're looking for it to be able to produce so many, re- so much return on your capital that it pays for if everything else was a zero. And so you're, you're hunting home runs. This is all you're kind of doing. And, and the result is in a typical venture capital fund, let's say you have, you have 25 companies, you only need, call it two or three to be knockouts and it'll pay for the rest. Like there's venture capital firms in the US who are the early investors in things like Uber or eBay 
LinkedIn, Instagram, like all these kind of big names. Well, those returns were so big. I'm just making up my numbers because I don't remember them. But like the Uber fund, their investment, a couple of million bucks into Uber, gave all of the investors in the entire fund. So they made whatever, 15, 20 other investments. All their money was made on Uber. It didn't even matter what everything else did. <laughs> it was such a big home run. So that's the model in venture, kind of classic model in venture is home runs, build a portfolio of them because that spreads your risk. And then and then let her let the stats play out where they play. Let her let her buck. This is your team. Let's see how it goes. Our approach is a little bit different. So similar in that we build a portfolio, similar in that everybody that we invest in, we think has a chance of being a knockout win, a home run. But in the classic VC model, they tend to just kind of go hands off a little bit, or they kind of they kind of help, but it's relatively hands off. Whereas we say, well, okay, wait a minute. All of these companies that we think have the opportunity to be home runs that we like in and of themselves, we're now going to come in and help them. We're going to bring our team, our experience, and everything else. And we're going to try and tip the scales in favor of them. And that's why we invested. We think we can help you build your business even better. And so we're not just going to go hands off. Like Think of us as your, as your kind of mercenaries. What do you need? Do you need to go buy something? Do you need to raise more capital? You need to sell something to a big chem company? You need to talk to farmers. What do you need to do? We're here and we're extensions of, it, of every one of our companies. Where are you most effectively applying you know, this business of solving riddles with these new companies? Well, that's why we're, we're really early. So we think we can have the greatest impact investing. You, you've called it kind of pre-seed and seed, pre-series A, like all these acronyms in the space. What it essentially is, is we're coming in once you've, you've got your idea. You've worked in enough that you're getting pretty close. We, we like to see those early initial customers that are at the plate, but you might not have even generated revenue yet. But like at least you're like you're talking and you're working the problem. That's where we come in. And that's because that's because we think that's where we can have the biggest impact and then really help stomp on the gas. One of the jokes I make is if you just if you just avoided all of the things I screwed up building companies, <laughs> then you're going to be fine. They're going to pay you just to help them not make the mistakes that you made, I take it. That, that's uh, right. Yeah. Right? Just don't do the same stuff I did. Uh, what are these companies at that stage missing the most in terms of the gap, the gap that they're experiencing going to the next level? Because you must help them bridge that gap. Yeah. It's, each one is, they're all, it's like, which of your children do you like more? Each one's a little <laughs> bit different, but a common piece because of where we're investing in terms of their stage, it's about how are they going to actually commercialize this thing? Like, like, how are we actually going to take it and make some money off of it? And, and sometimes the founders, because they tend to be technical in nature, that the people, they really get, they fall in love with the problem, which is cool. And so they keep solving it better and better and better, but they forget because they're not really good at it, going to talk to the customer, the person who's actually using it in the field or in the processing plant or whatever. And then, and what happens is they start to miss each other. The found the, the builder gets building a tool that the person on the in the field level doesn't actually need. And so that gap we spent a lot of time trying to collapse. But then also, how can we align the strategy of actually making money off this thing with the value that we're creating? And so there's been a big trend in AG around per acre subscriptions. Oh, okay, sounds cool. But if our tool 
isn't adding per acre value or doesn't align with, let's say it's a financial tool. It doesn't really matter how many acres you have. Well, is that like the right way to monetize it? And so how do we like, how do we think about that? How do we do it better? And maybe it's not also selling it direct to a farmer. Maybe the person who actually needs it is the agronomist. And so the farmer will get the benefit that way, but it actually helps the agronomist's business because they don't need a lab to do tissue sampling, for example, in fungicide season. It must be reflected in your team, the difference in agriculture is, as far as the culture goes, where you only have 40 kicks at the can, should your health permit to, yeah. to be successful. Whereas if you're an Instagram model, you can post 40 stories a day and, and right. tag a bunch of other influencers and scale with virtually no friction. Yeah, yeah. You you brought in some folks from the agricultural community, I take it? Yeah, you bet. We work really hard as we were putting together our team of making sure we were bringing people from all different perspectives and in a couple of different lenses. So we have a number of, we work really hard of a number of primary producers, whether it's cattle producers, grain operators, di- kind of different people up and down that primary production stack that are close to us, either as advisors, many of them are our investors and, and, are, and are at that intersection because we we want to be able to understand the problem. We want them to be able to tell our companies what their real problem is and have an influence on building a better product. That's really important. But at the same time, we started our jobs to multiply capital. So we need to build these companies and then ultimately sell at least our interest in order to be able to return it to our 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 investors. And so we also are talking to who are the incumbents in the space. So we've got the equipment manufacturers, the chem companies, agronomy, kind of all sorts of different players, grain handlers. Well, what do they need? What are they interested in? What are they trying to buy? And so bringing all those pieces together and those perspectives is super important. So we've got people on our team from those spaces. We've got our investors from those spaces. We've got our network from those spaces. And it's just kind of like an onion. We just keep peeling it and working those channels. What is your view on a company coming to market when you're talking about disruption versus transformation, collaboration versus throwing a grenade into the existing incumbent? Yeah. Like I think the word about like disruption or even transformation, like they get thrown around a lot (laughs) to the point where I'm not even totally sure necessarily what they mean. And so there's an element of if we kind of step back and go back to first principles, it's like, well, does this actually move the needle? So we got a whole world that's enamored right now with sustainability and environmental and a bunch of stuff. And so like we're talking phosphorus runoff and nitrogen gasification, all this kind of stuff. Well, how can we actually move the needle on those things, but in a way that actually makes the farmer's life better? How can we actually increase production while using less nitrogen or make it easier to use nitrogen in different kinds of ways? And so while that might blow up Yara's business as the world's largest nitrogen supplier, that's why it's important for us to also be having conversations with Yara because we get interesting insights where they say, well, here's what we're actually really worried about. Here's what we see coming. And we go, oh, that's interesting. Because then we can go out into the market and go, well, we now we can solve two problems with one company. And as a job of capital multipliers, that's really powerful. We solved a farmer's problem. So they've got something they actually want to use. And oh, by the way, we solved Yara's problem because we're having a conversation 
with someone like that. So we understand what their problems are and it becomes a win-win. So maybe that's transformation. Maybe that's a grenade. I don't know, but it's moving the needle. And that's ultimately what we need to do. When you talk about using first principles to solve problems, form versus function, can you tell me a little bit more about that? It's from the Aristotle way of thinking, or or is that what you refer to? When you prefer- <laughs> well, you're, you're way ahead of me. I don't read a lot of Aristotle these days. <laughs> I just heard it the other day. Yeah, you mentioned it, so I'm like, holy doodle. That's an interesting yeah. <laughs> way of approaching things. Well, and that's even like how we just built the firm, right? Like I talked about from the bottom up, how do we invest in companies and then help them build better companies? Well, that's a big way to de-risk the way we deploy capital. That's a, a way to help these companies grow faster and then ultimately provide better returns to our investors who stand behind us. That's why I always point behind when I think investors. And so, <laughs> and so that's like, that's a first principles approach. Well, it's the same in a, helping to build a company. Okay. Well, What's the problem we're trying to solve? And is someone actually going to pay you to solve the problem? And is there a bunch of people that are going to pay you to solve the problem? And so an example of like something will come in. This is a really cool mousetrap that solves a really big problem for lentil growers northwest of Moose Jaw. But if lentil growers northwest of Moose Jaw (laughs) are the only people with that particular problem, well, that's really interesting. It's not where we're going to first principle. That's not going to build the type of stuff that we want to invest in because we want something that solves problems for a whole bunch of people. That's how we start to build this kind of high growth company. Well, and sometimes I wonder if you're just talking to the innovators, are you missing something? Because the innovators will keep on innovating right past you after they're more or less done with your wares and will yeah. the pack follow in a meaningful way where yeah. you have some depth to the product that that can pay the bills. Well, that's why it's important to talk to everybody. We got to talk to the innovators because they've got the crazy harebrained ideas out of garages. And, and you have to be like, so it was described to me once that like true innovation, like true kind of disruptive innovation has to be almost indistinguishable from magic at the early days. And so like these innovators have to be crazy to come up with this stuff which is exciting. But we have to be able to translate. We have to be able to take crazy from an innovator. And we have to be able to go and talk to a Langenberg farmer about how this actually fits within what they're trying to do and get that to kind of happen. And then on the other side of our business, we then have to take farmer and crazy innovator, and we have to go explain it to some white shirt investor banker in wall street in new york of what we're doing and oh by the way that's going to make all this money because russia invaded ukraine and we buggered up all our supply chains and we've got all these other problems (laughs) well and i wonder as well when you're asking the check writers is it enough value in it for them to provide that feedback for nothing or does it get to the point where I've heard my brother express it too? Well, if you want me to try out your stuff at this point in my career, unlike yes. previously, you might have to pay me because I'm just at that at that point where I'm not trying out your shit for free because it tends to cost me money. Yeah, we don't we don't want free advice. Free advice doesn't tend to be very good. good and point. so I think it's a really good point. Now, value may not be economic, like we may be able to provide value in other ways beyond a dollars and cents, but there has to be value that's provided. And so 
let's take that crazy innovators example. Hey, I've got a totally new way to think about nitrogen. Well, if we bring that over to your brother, there has to be, even if he's not getting paid to use it today, because often those economics are hard. Hey, Terry, here's a million dollars to use this thing. Like that's a tricky one. Hey, we think this thing will do it. Here's what we're trying to achieve. Well, one, use it for free. Let's look at ways we can get, maybe you're getting a jump on the market because you get earlier access to this stuff. There's other kind of feedback loops. There's other ways to think about it. The kind of trifecta for us is, oh, and by the way, this group of people that we've introduced the crazy innovator to also happens to be investors in our fund. And so they're going to get the return on helping build this company. And so you get those pieces. On the finance side of the equation, if you are Yara or Bayer or some of these other companies, they're also trying to get a look in, well, what's that crazy innovator in a garage doing? Because that's the person who's going to disrupt us. Back to those words. And so they want a look. What's going on there? And how can how can they prove their business? Well, that's not necessarily monetary. That's a longer kind of longer term play. So you always have to be adding value to the stakeholders. Otherwise, free advice is you get to what you pay for. Well, and things have different quantitative value to to different people. Just like yeah. employees aren't always looking for the same thing that you think you value doesn't necessarily yeah. equate to them them valuing. Yeah. So what do you look for in companies? Well, we kind of covered a, a number of the things that we're looking for and that we want, we still, similar to other venture capitalists, we want companies that can rapidly scale. And so what we look for is, is ca- capital light, meaning we don't want to build grain elevators. We want to be able to invest in building the kind of the product or the technology, et cetera, and, and be able to sell each incremental unit at a lower cost base than the one prior. That's kind of the rough math. So we're looking for that kind of torque because that, that creates big returns on our equity because we are, we're equity investors. And so we want to go in early. We want to see founders, management teams that are excited about what they're doing. They're in love with the problem. And and more importantly, they're in love with the customer's problem. Sometimes that's different than the problem. And they want to work with us. That's really important because our whole model is we want to come and add value. And so if you have a management team that has all the answers and doesn't need any help, probably not a good fit. (laughs) Probably not a good fit for us. It might be for others. So we're doing that. But we've got a couple of biases also. We call them biases within our investment profile. So we're really interested around protein. Lots of people talk about plant-based protein and, and pea fractionation and peas and lentils and all this kind of stuff, which we think that's really interesting. But we think also there's been a ton of capital that's been spent turning peas into hamburgers. And in the meantime, we've ignored the other roughly 85% of the world's protein stack, which comes out of an animal. And there's a whole bunch of stuff there that we think has been underinvested in. And so that becomes really interesting. And there's different ways to kind of approach that market. Over the, ne- over the next couple of decades, the world's forecasted to need twice as much protein as we, as we currently are consuming. So that's a big opportunity set. We're also interested around digital. And so I'm sure a lot of your listeners will roll their eyes. Yeah, yeah, we've heard it. Well, we think what's happened here is a lot of software, digital tools, apps, call them whatever you want, have been built. And they're like, they're solving a problem, maybe. They're creating value, maybe. But they often are siloed. It's like one problem, one digital tool. And, and 
and producers or users, and it's not just at the farm gate, because this is all the way kind of up and down our food production systems. They're, they're tired of that. They want like, what's next? Well, when we look out at that ecosystem, what we think is really interesting is we have seen this play out. It played out in kind of big enterprise software back in the 90s, single problem, single tool. And the world was like, yeah, okay, I guess we need this stuff. But so what? Out of that came that kind of dark period is what grew the champions that we know in enterprise of today. Companies like Oracle and Salesforce and you know SAP, these big accounting software, like all this kind of stuff. That came out of that. And so we think that's kind of where we're at in egg. We've kind of laid some foundational blocks. People are playing with digital. They kind of see that there's a value there, but it hasn't really taken off yet. So we're looking at what's that next generation. And we think we're going to get kind of platforms that do a bunch of stuff for you, things that start automating decisions and actually give real recommendations and predictions, not just data entry. So we think that's interesting. And then the last one is around we call it inputs, but we look at inputs, not just as like crop inputs, not just chemistry and fertility, which is also, I think, fascinating. I think we could do a whole thing just on fertilizer, but also how is egg producing inputs into other things? So like one of our companies has a mousetrap where they can take vegetable oils. So think flax, hemp, these types of things, industrial oils, and turn it into an epoxy resin. Well, if you're in the energy transition business, say wind turbines, all a wind turbine basically is, is carbon fiber coated in epoxy resin. It's an entirely a petroleum-based machine. Well, imagine if we can grow that. And so we think we can. And so that becomes a really interesting opportunity. So we're investing there as, as well. In your opinion, what role does agriculture play in the larger macro concerns of civilization regarding being obliterated as a human race due to exorbitant climate change rapidly consuming us? I think, well, obviously I'm biased. I think agriculture is key in, in all of these conversations. But to me, what's become really interesting is I think the world has also finally woken up to that. And a couple of weeks ago, I was invited to, to be at a sustainability and climate change investing kind of summit thing. <laughs> and so there's all these companies in there pitching their ideas. And I started keeping track. 85, 90% of them we're agriculture. Wow. And so this whole conversation, right? Agriculture is woven in everywhere. You can't talk sustainability. You can't talk and you can't talk energy transition without talking fertilizer. And you can't talk sustainability without talking about soils and plants and biologicals and all this kind of stuff. It is it is wound so tight around everything that the world is doing right now. And the world didn't realize it until COVID happened and everyone thought they were going to run out of toilet paper and they all went to the grocery store. And that was the first moment in at least a generation, arguably two, that the consumer realized food doesn't come from a grocery store. It comes from somewhere before that. And Russia, Ukraine has only accelerated that supply chain going all bonkers and you couldn't get anything shipped off on Amazon or whatever. You couldn't get your stuff from China. That only just accelerated. So it has pulled agriculture to the forefront of the general consumer and then by extension, the investors and kind of the general world. 
like we haven't seen in in generations. Interesting. Give us an idea of where you're at in the life cycle of of this fund, where you're at now, where you're going, and maybe talk about some of the companies that you've already invested in or you're eyeing up, for whatever you can tell yeah, us. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so the fund that we're currently investing out of, which is kind of the lingo, means we're writing checks. We're we're currently investing in in companies. We are, as you mentioned, we're we're targeting really early ag ag and food tech, primarily ag that we can help. And so we are targeting 20 companies total in this portfolio that we'll build. It's going to take us about three years total to spend all that money. By the time we like pick our winners, pick our ponies. We have six of them done currently. So we've made six investments and we can kind of talk about those. In doing those six to kind of give you an indication, we looked at 160 different companies in order to in order to pick six. And a little bit of that's actually skewed because I think four of those six, we already had in the holster uh, before we went. So anyway, wow. it's, you know, two or three out of 160. Kind of give you a sense of the scale that we're at. Our, a fund like ours, the way these work is we, we go out to investors that are interested in investing in the stuff that we're doing. They believe in what we're doing and they like kind of our approach. And so they invest in us. The vehicle is it's called a limited partnership. Lots of people probably have them in their farms as well. So it's very tax efficient. So you as an investor would say, I tell you what, I'm in for $250,000 of this total fund. And to give you a, a scale of it, we're targeting about 20 million total that we will invest. So I'm an investor, I'm in for 250. And, but the way it works, I'm, you're not out of pocket. You're just saying like it's it's like an IOU. I'm in for 250. Call me when you need my money. And so then we go out and when we find one of these companies, we go, okay, your proportional share of this, let's say there's a hundred investors in our fund. You're one of them. So your proportional share is whatever, 10 grand. Send us a check for $10,000 so we can do this deal. And it all flows through. And then the inverse is true as well. As we sell companies, we send the money home. So we sell a company for a billion dollars. I shouldn't use that. For a hundred million dollars. <laughs> we send home to our hundred investors. You get your slice of, of what our piece of the pie was. And so we're still accepting new investors into our fund. It's normal to be investing part of the fund while we're still raising the fund. So that's where we are right now. It's kind of like an awkward adolescent stage. So we're, we're still talking to investors and people that are interested in what we're doing who want to come along and, and kind of do that side of the equation as well. Yeah. I mean, if I'm talking to a 3,600 acre farmer from Southern Saskatchewan, who's got $2 million in the bank, why wouldn't they want to invest in things that they know with people that they like, like you guys? It's an interesting thing you bring up. Like a number of our investors are basically that kind of a profile. Part of it's diversification. You've got a bunch of money in land and equipment other assets on your core operation. And in times of high inflation, you could let that $2 million sit in the bank account, but you're basically losing money. Because if you're in a, let's call it 7% inflationary environment, that means that the buying power of that 2 million is shrinking by 7%. Whereas we're taking it, our jobs to multiply it. And so diversify your risk, but also with something that you that's applicable and, that, and, and a space you're in. It's kind of like, energy people, oil and gas executives tend to invest in oil and gas companies because they know the space. And so 
that's what we're doing. We're investing in, there's very few options in the market to be able to invest in agriculture. If you're a big pension fund, you essentially buy land or you buy grain handling companies or shipping companies. <laughs> yeah. But $2 million doesn't go very far to buy a grain elevator. $2 million <laughs> doesn't, even, doesn't even go very far to buy a buy land anymore. No. And so it's a it's a diversification strategy. And and a lot of people, that's the investor base, right? Like when you look at the world that's going kind of bonkers, you can invest it in the public markets, but those are going down because inflation's going up. That's a natural thing. So you go there, well, that's you're not outrunning the inflationary issue. You're just shrinking capital, which is which is why coming to us, like we're it's food and egg, which is driving a lot of the inflationary pressures in the economy right now. Yeah. And so we're the other side of that problem. So if you're a general investor, your money goes like this in the stock market. Well, we're investing in the stuff that goes like this because of those pressures. Yeah, it's a brilliant hedge in a way, as you say. Okay, okay. Hi, man. I'll give me my 250. <laughs> you call me when you need it. That's right. an IOU That's right. on paper and you're going to scale me in and you're going to scale me out. Well, yeah. how long, Wilson, in all fairness, in reality, we got to know each other a little bit now and I trust you. When will I get my money back and how many more of my dollars that I gave you will there be at the end? So the the structure is that so this is really common in the space. We joke, save all the innovation for the companies, not in the kind of vehicle. <laughs> uh, limited partnership that has a total of 10 years of life. So the first three years, we we are investing the money. The next call it five years, we're working at growing it. And then we harvest it in in the last, there's some overlap in the growth and harvest periods, but we harvest kind of in the last call it three years. As I mentioned, as we collect money from investments we sell, we send it home right away. So it's not like you're out 250 on day one, mm-hmm. and then 10 years later, you get 250 plus the returns. It comes it comes out over time and it comes back over time. And that's intentional. And so you're we don't want you out of your money longer than we have to be. We want to keep those timelines short. In terms of our return profile, this is where I have to hedge with all of my like warnings and past returns may not be future. <laughs> Legal and, disclaimer. Yeah, yeah. Disclaimer, <laughs> disclaimer. And if the Securities Commission's <laughs> listening, buyer beware. But what we believe we can do is roughly three times your money. Investing in the space at the world we're looking at, our our hypothesis is we have a strong belief that that we can generate three times. So if you're in for 250, that will ultimately give you back right around 750 as as we go. Sounds good. Well, the fun part is who are we buying? Who are we helping? What problems are they solving? Yeah, we there is. Well, we looked at 160 of them. There is all sorts of problems we're solving out there. We're intentionally also moving across a bunch of different areas because we don't want to concentrate our risk. We, we're not... One thing we say is we're not just investing in, in grain, Saskatchewan grain farmer related tech. We're investing in a bunch of stuff. So we a company we invested in called Vivid Machines they're doing this really cool stuff. They're using cameras mounted on like ATVs and tractors and using computer vision on these cameras, they can identify on an apple tree, which are the blossoms that are going to be the ones that produce the economic apples and which are the ones that aren't. Therefore, you need to go snip this blossom because it's not going to be the one that works. But then that becomes really important when you start talking to the pack, packing house, because now the packing house knows what's coming off that orchard size and quality and a bunch of stuff. And so the predict the prediction and the economics really start to go around. And so you can see a bunch of ways that gets pretty cool, pretty fast. 
you can start loading it up on a robot with a laser. And so now the laser starts zapping. <laughs> the, this is kind of cool stuff. And it can go in a bunch of different directions, but really interesting. And, and the reason why that's interesting is we're seeing basically computer vision, how that can be deployed in a whole bunch of different ways. So if you talk about a world of autonomous machinery, there's a big computer vision element, right? Where the machine sees something and then acts on it in real time. It has to be smart enough to do it. So that's that's something that's really interesting to us and where that can go. We've got another one also in the vein of computer vision. It's different, using it in a different way. Based out of Regina, actually, and, and it's great founder, Kyle Folk, Ground Truth Egg, a bunch of people on your podcast probably heard of them now. And so what they're trying to do is real-time grain grading analysis on the combine. And so as you're going you can see, well, is this number one high protein? Is this number two? Is this, we use the wheat example, kind of what are we harvesting, where and when? Well, now you can start making a bunch of different decisions off that information. When you think about precision agronomy, precision ag, kind of all of this sort of stuff, grain marketing decisions, the quality part of the equation has really been a black box. We know about bushels, right? We get real-time volume on the combine. Now, we won't touch on the accuracy of that information, but let's just assume it's accurate. We've got that, but like, but if it's a number three or it's a number one or a high protein, low protein, like those are magnificently different outcomes economically. So that's an important gap to fill in our opinion, which goes into a bunch of different places. We're looking at a company that thinks they've created an entirely new mousetrap to, to create nitrogen essentially out of air. Uh, in field. So instead of granular urea application, think think like foliar crop application, tank mix, and and it synth and the and the product on plant synthesizes nitrogen at the plant. So that gets you're talking about a world that's trying to deal with nitrogen. That gets really interesting in a hurry. We've got let's see what else do we have in the portfolio? We got that bio resin company I mentioned, Zilla. They're taking vegetable oils and turning them into an epoxy resin. One cup AI? Yeah, one cup. They're doing computer vision again. Really cool stuff. Livestock identification. So think like a security camera. Fix it on a post. You can do it out in the field, in a barn, whatever. And and it's watching the animals. Well, what it's essentially doing is it's building a very detailed digital model of every, let's use the cow as the example, of every cow. And so... That cow walks by that camera to go get a drink of water three times a day. And one day the shoulder is slightly sloped differently or she's, or she's got a bit of a weird step or whatever. Well, now right away, like we can, is she in heat? Is she about to calve? Is she sick in the feedlot setting? Are we at kind of our maximum efficiency for weight gain? All these kind of different things, just kind of outcomes that can get driven really fast. And it's not just a camera that you as a rancher wake up in the middle of the night and watch and go, is that cow about to calve? No, 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 no. It's smart enough. It knows this cow is calving and then can tell you, it alerts you. So now you only get the exceptions, right? Now this is the, these are the 10 cows you have to go deal with, not the 500 that are fine. And again, enabling tech. And so you can, you can think quickly about how you have that on say your feedlot. And all of a sudden you can start to automate like the gates. So the cow goes to drink water. We already know that it's an optimal weight gain or it's sick because of the the camera has has figured this out. And so automatically we can swing the gates. And so that cow has to go to the vet barn or has to go to the finish pen. 
you don't need a cowboy to go swing the gate or, or you've got the cowboys there watching, but you're helping them do better because they're trying to watch 10,000 cows now while they're Snapchatting with, with whomever's on the other end of their phone. And so it kind of creates a really powerful layer that we're excited about. Then we got another one that's doing plant tissue analysis without a lab. So they're primarily focused on potatoes, but they're coming into the crops. So instead of doing a going out, walking your field, scouting, rip a leaf, send it off to the lab, you can like do it in real time, handheld device, boom, here's your micronutrient analysis, load up the sprayer, let's go. Huh. Well, I'm just thinking of all these potential applications for supervillains on planet Earth to repurpose this like, right. spirit of Gru, a despicable me or something with one cup AI <laughs> and there. You could use that on humans. I mean, for some nefarious purposes, not that we ever would. But I mean, when you talk about repurposing egg yeah. inputs, a lot of this technology can be repurposed and do wonders in other sectors. And at that core, that's maybe yeah. where you'll capture some of those multiples if somebody yeah. else in another area realizes its value. In our last episode, we talked to an individual who's training people how to use essentially everything he learned from working with agricultural drones on the front line in Ukraine. Yeah. There's a good example of how right. it's just leaped boundaries for a completely yeah. different, extremely powerful purpose, which is a little bit spooky. That's where GPS-assisted steering came from, right? That came out of the Gulf War. Right. We got really good at, at the U.S. The U.S. got really good at dropping bombs. Yeah. Turns out that's really good at driving tractors. Well, when they opened up WAS, that was mm -hmm. a game changer. What gives you the strongest sense of purpose in this endeavor? Is it taking my money and multiplying it? Is it working with startups? Is it fixing riddles, solving riddles, a little bit of everything? What gives you the greatest sense of purpose in the morning? And to me, like I just love, I love building the businesses, which is kind of the riddles piece in my mind. It's the strategy. It's how we stick the kind of stick the pieces together. To me, the economics, that's to make sure that we stay aligned. I don't go solving a riddle that the company doesn't actually need solved. It's a similar thing that I want the company to align with their customer's problem. I need to be aligned with the company's problem. So the economics follow. We've been intentional about that. But it's how do we build these great businesses that are going to make a great change? I think that's really exciting. Good for you, man. Incredible conversation. You guys are doing amazing things in the market. If people want to give you their money, how do they get a hold of you? Email W-A-C-T-O-N, W-Acton at tallgrass.vc. I'm also on LinkedIn and you can probably track me down pretty quick with a Google. <laughs> well, good for you, man. I got to get Chris Patterson on the show here eventually as well and pick his, Great guy. his brain. Absolutely. Absolutely. And hey, I wish you luck in all your ventures and I hope that we have opportunity to work together on a number of different fronts. I know you've been talking to Terry. I could see you guys across yeah. the table there. You could almost hear what you're saying over the jazz singer in the background there at Calgary when we first met. <laughs> was that a singer? I, I wasn't was it, sure what that was. I playing piano and just belting out this tune and it was like, <laughs> wow, I don't know. I mean, we're going to get really aggressive and talk over this, but I could see you guys were making plans for world conquest there and I right? can imagine the various synchronicities between everything that we're doing and what you guys are doing. But anyways, it sounds like so much fun. I'm sure people are going to enjoy this episode and thanks for coming on and keep up the good work. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was awesome. Thanks, Wilson. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. We really appreciate that you'd spend some of your valuable time with us. We would like to give a shout out to Stephen and Veronica and the whole team at Pod Sound School for their talent and hard work in editing and producing these episodes. Be sure to check them out at www.podsoundschool.com. 
Also, Nicole Doobie from Neighborhood Egg Solutions. Thank you so much. Nicole's really passionate about making these episodes come to life and sharing them with you. Please, let's stay in touch. You can communicate with us on any of the social media platforms. You can also check us out on YouTube. And sign up for our newsletter, growingthefuturepodcast.ca, so you don't miss an episode. Do not forget to check out the Aberhart family of companies online to aberhartfarms.com, suregrowth.ca, convergencegrowth.com, and aberhartagsolutions.ca. Links are in the episode notes. We would love to hear from you. Reach out and tell us what you like about the show or what we could do to improve upon this. And we will send you some free swag. Until next episode, folks, let's keep it real. Growing the future together. Oh.